Hello, and welcome to the Should I Go See It podcast, where every other Friday we take a deeper dive into the one-sentence reviews on shouldigoseeit.com. This week we'll be discussing The Nun 2, A Haunting in Venice, Bottoms, Dumb Money, and Expendables 4. I'm your host, Bill George. With me today, super producer Craig Stanton. Yellow. How are you, William? Craig, how are you? I'm doing well. Oh, uh, I am excellent. Excited to be here. Uh, unfortunately, no uh, AJ Rebecca, usual co-host this week. You know, schedules for the three of us lining up have been a nightmare for multiple weeks in a row. Hence, this episode also being a little late. Indeed. But we're here, and we're going to do it. No apologies. <laughs> Just facts. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's life. But what's been new since our Last episode, Craig. Well, Bill, I went on a, a two-week uh, rock and roll tour, so I am just—I just did a crash landing back into my normal life uh, yesterday. Yep, <laughs> parachuted in, <laughs> just breaking <laughs> shit, uh, trying to mend together the broken pieces of my existence. So that's been my Love situation. That. Last forty-eight or so hours. Uh, tour was good though. Tour was fun. I was going to ask, successful, I assume? Very much a success. A lot of great shows, a lot of good times. About What's the highlight? Any, any particular highlight? Oh, I would say the highlight was our show in San Francisco. We were supporting a band called Streetlight Manifesto, a very popular ska punk band. Nice. Played at a theater called the Warfield Theater, which is like a historic, sweet old theater. Oh, Many cool. uh, Grateful Dead fans were reaching out to us talking about how sick the Warfield is. A lot of like Grateful Dead related history in that place holds like two thousand people. It was fucking great, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of other good times like that. So yeah, good good stuff. What about you? That sounds awesome. I'm also putting my life together post COVID, which I got for the second time. Oh, um, hey, yeah, pretty sure Throwback. I got it at the Patriots game from NFL Opening Weekend, which AJ was with me at the time. Uh, so next time he's on the show, we can kind of dive more into that experience because it was an experience. Sure, but I did end up getting sick from it. At first, I thought it was just a cold because I was sitting in the rain for hours and hours. <laughs> that whole goddamn first half, yep. But then uh, tested positive, so I was. You know, on my ass for a week. Not as bad as the first time I had it, but it definitely seems like it is ramping back up for this cold season. So stay safe out there, folks. Good times. Well, that I would assume that gave you an opportunity to, to watch some stuff. What, yeah. do, what do we got? Big episode, <laughs> oh, looks like. Big episode. We got five reviews from theaters, a couple more things, including an entire television series that I watched while I was uh, on the couch. So a lot to get into today. I assume in uh, that no theaters were visited while you were actively experiencing the novel coronavirus. No, that's correct. Correct. But prior to and just after yes. and okay. the extra week that we had since our last episode, I have seen a bunch. Understood. Just trying to head off some some mean DMs about. Uh, no, 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 no. I was uh, very respectful of the public. I'm glad during that, during that time, but still saw a lot in the last couple of weeks. So. We'll have a lot to go over, but we also have some news uh, to touch on. Indeed we do, Bill. Let's get started uh, with a story from Vulture, which uncovered a scheme from a PR firm that goosed reviews for the 2018 Daisy Ridley drama called Ophelia. After initial reviews came in, resulting in a 46% rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes, the PR team started paying lower-level critics on the website to post positive reviews for 50 bucks a pop. Ophelia jumped from a 62% oh, Ophelia jumped up to a 62% rating, scoring a fresh label. And the next month, IFC Films announced it acquired the film for distribution. Bill, what is your reaction to this bombshell piece of journalism? 
so first, this this story came to us from Greg Kelly, fan of the show. So thank you for sending this my way. And it did not feel particularly groundbreaking to me. It basically brings to light a tangible example of something that we've already known, which is that Rotten Tomatoes is trash and all aggregator sites are trash. I've said that before on this fine program, but they are by no means a measure of quality of a film. All they really do is measure like either the reach of a film, like how well known it is, or in this case, it measures the depth of the pockets of the studio that made it. They're just completely meaningless. You know, these sites, the thing that drives me nuts about them is the idea of trying to boil down all critic reactions to like an easy computable number when different... Yeah, who would ever try to synthesize complex thoughts down into a simple, maybe one sentence review or uh, summation? We'll get there. But the point is, I'm one person with my one opinion. They're trying to take people who do one to four stars, one to five. They score things on a one to 10. Sometimes people use letter grades. Sometimes people use letter grades with a plus or minus. And in my case, I use a yes or no. But Rotten Tomatoes tries to turn all those into numbers and then create one number. And you just, you can't translate it into a consistent system. It just, it's not going to happen. The topic is too subjective and it just, it doesn't work. If you're actually looking for a film review, you need to find a critic or a publication that you trust, you generally align with, and you stick with that and you read what they have to say. Like for me, back in the day, it was the AV Club when they were culturally significant and not just list makers. I hope if you're listening to this podcast, maybe I'm one of those people that you check in with to get my opinion. But you can't just go by an aggregated number on one of these sites. It's this. They don't work. They don't work. And now we see that they are not only do they not work in general, but they are subject to corruption. I, for one, applaud their dirty dealings and look forward to the day where we are being paid uh, uh, briefcases full of cash to influence our opinions. Here's the problem, though. God bless America. Because I have, when I was first starting out, I said to myself, maybe I should be, I want to be considered for one of these aggregate sites, blah, blah, blah. The problem is my yes or no system would basically translate to either a zero or a 100 because there's like no other way to turn my reviews into a number. And that wouldn't make sense because that's why there is a sentence involved. That's why there is the podcast where I can share more. your soft yeses, your hard noes. I got soft yes, I got hard noes, I got different things, I got ins and outs. So it doesn't translate to Rotten Tomatoes. So I've never been a part of it and I've never cared for it. And so if you are someone who relies on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, I suggest you look other other places. Indeed. Especially after news like this. Well, very glad we're on the record with that. Are you ready for the big news of the week? Yes, Bill? this is the real news. Because this is the shit that's, that's, that's real. So according to Deadline, after almost five months, the Writers Guild strike is officially over. Woo! That is as of today, Wednesday, September 27th. Their new contract will run from September 25th, 2023 through May 1st, 2026, delivering on issues that many scribes saw as core to their profession. The deal contains big leaps in AI guardrails, residuals, and data transparency for writers, leaps that could be transplanted into the upcoming negotiations between the AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA, which could start in the next week. Bill, how did the writers make out on this? Sounds like they they got most of what they wanted. Sounds like it worked out really well based on the positive reception from various writers and the guild itself. Yeah. Obviously they're going to make it sound amazing no matter what because they, you know, it's it's over. 
But it does sound like some good stuff. I mean, a couple of the things that we've talked about on this show have come through minimum staffing on certain writers' rooms or minimum amounts of time of contract for certain writers' rooms got approved, which I know was a big one. The one that we've talked a lot about is the streamers are going to share with the guild directly their viewership numbers in a with like NDA sign and confidentiality, but they will still share those numbers so that the WGA can then share some of that data in the aggregate with their teams, but then also be able to break up the residuals properly. So it sounds like it'll still be walled off. It's not going to be, they're not going to post this stuff publicly, but there is going to be some more transparency for them, at least as writers, to know who's watching their stuff. A step towards actual half-decent transparency on that. Right, so that's a big one. And then the biggest one was the AI. So under the terms of the agreement that I saw, to quote sort of part of the what the WGA said, the AI cannot write or rewrite literary material, and AI-generated material will not be considered source material. A writer can choose to use AI when performing their writing services if the company consents and provided that the writer follows certain policies. The company can't require anybody to use AI at any point using during their services. And the company also has to disclose to the writer if any, like if you're doing rewrite work for a production company, if they, they hire you to rewrite a script, they have to, cons- they have to disclose to you if any of the material you're getting came from AI at one point. So there's just a lot more in place to handle AI versus just being the Wild West, which it was up to this point. Yeah. The AI stuff to me on this always kind of seemed like a, not a distraction, but something close to it, where it's like everyone's sort of trying, like the writers are trying to guard themselves against some unknown future regarding, you know, AI writing tools and AI writing assistance and stuff like that. So it just kind of seems like both sides are, projecting their vision of what could be good or bad about this future that is yet unknown and sort of guarding against that, which to me seems dumb, but whatever. I'm just glad they made a deal. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. Now we have to all eyes kind of turn to SAG and the writer, excuse me, the actors guild because they still can't sort of resume production until you have actors get, on set. Gotta have everyone. Yeah. So presumably now that these, now that they already, they gave the DJ what they wanted from, day one. They've now given WGA mostly what they wanted here. Odds are good. They're going to turn to the SAG and give them what they want to. So we should be up and running in a bit. The hard part is it's easy to stop production. It's a whole lot harder to like re-ramp up production and book locations and book actors. And like, it's going to be the after effects are still going to take a while just because the strike's over. We're still going to have a next year or two that is going to be a little light. Yeah, but at least people will be back to work, man. I mean, there's so many people that haven't worked in weeks and months because of this thing that have nothing to do with either strike, really. You know, freaking grips and camera people and fucking delivery people and all sorts of the guy that sweeps the floors. Like, none of these people have been working. So it'll be, it's good, good that it's resolved. Yeah. And then presumably in a year and a half or so, all of a sudden we're going to have a ton of stuff coming out. Because it's all all starting at once, which is kind of neat. Just a, gl- a glut of new material. There, yeah, and there were uh, shows. We almost had a news story in here that doesn't matter anymore, where there were shows that to get some of those grips and crew people back to work, there were some talk shows that were planning on coming back without writers and just focusing on interviews and panel discussions. But they got so much flack from the writers on strike that they pulled back. But now the strike's over, so it shouldn't matter. No worries. But you are right. But you are right. A lot of people out of work and now they're back. Yeah, totally. Exciting news. Good stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, good stuff for our podcast, good stuff for our general, you know, mental health and well-being. Well-being, yeah, You won't have to watch fucking Love Island for like months (laughs) at a time. Yeah. Very cool. Shall we move on to the Should I Go See It segment of this podcast, Bill? Yes, let's. I'm excited. Uh, This is a real fucking murderer's row of, of movies this week. So live, we got some horror, we got some comedy, we got some good, we got some bad. It's a lot. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with The Nun 2. The synopsis is as follows. Very truncated, lot of punctuation. 1956, France, period. A priest is murdered, period. And evil is spreading, (laughs) period. The sequel to the worldwide smash hit follows Sister Irene as she once again comes face to face with the demon nun. Bill, should I go see it? Yeah, it's a no. It's a no. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah, it's, um, this is the latest installment in the Conjuring universe, which is the shared universe of horror movies that started with Conjuring that include things like the Nun movies, the Annabelle movies, the Curse of La Llorona. I know there's a bunch, but anyway, this is the latest one. It picks up where the first nun left off, where there is a demon nun that is moving to a new place in Europe and Sister Irene from the first movie played by Taisa Farmiga, Vera Farmiga's daughter, is having to try to vanquish this evil. Mm -hmm. So that's the setup. My usual criteria for a yes, which I've talked about, but to to reiterate, is I need a movie to either show me something that I've never seen before or execute something I've seen before really, really well. And that is more true for horror than any other genre, which is why I bring it back up, because the genre of horror is so overstuffed. There's so much, so many horror movies every year because studios love them because they're cheap to make and they can churn out a bunch of them. And if one hits, then they make good returns and they're covered. And once in a while, one hits big like Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity that like is a new spin on the genre and it changes everything. And, and you know, that's what the studios are always hoping for every time they, they do these. But the Conjuring, and the first Conjuring was one of those types of hits. The first Conjuring was directed by James Wan. He directed the hell out of it, extremely well executed. They add like some historical sort of bit to it to make it seem like it's authentic. And it was a huge hit and it became a shared universe of movies. The problem is now we're, you know, 12, 13 movies in and it's hard to find enjoyment in these sort of boilerplate thrillers that are just predictable setups and jump scares and cat scares. And it's just the same thing over and over again. And with the trend lately in elevated horror with things like Hereditary or The Witch or Midsummer or The Lodge or Talk to Me, like there's so much more interesting stuff out there now that when you go back to these classic jump scare, cat scare, jump scare movies, like it just feels like a step backwards. So it didn't really do much for me. So I got I to gotta give it a no. It just it does not stand out compared to what else is out there in this realm. We've stepped up the horror game. For sure. A24 Absolutely. did it to us. They can't go back. Any positives at all? Like, is there any redeeming or is it just like a, a, a dead no avoided at all costs? There, there are some. There's a couple positives. Like the nun herself, I always thought was a pretty cool creature design, so to speak. Like it's become pretty iconic. It stands out from everything else in the Conjuring universe. And the nun really has become like the symbol of the Conjuring series, even though it's only two movies, because she has popped up in a couple other ones as like cameos, so to speak. So I always thought the nun was herself is pretty cool. The problem is they don't really use her a lot. A lot of times it's more just in the shadows or whatever. There's a couple good sequences in it. I will say usually 
the last 20 to 25 minutes of these movies when sort of shit hits the fan, it goes haywire. They're no longer going for creepy. It's just like people screaming and running and loud string instruments. And usually those are the most like annoying and like, let's just get through this ending. But in this movie, that was actually the strongest part of the movie. Like that final ending, they had a couple different storylines that were cross-cutting between. There were some unexpected twists in that. It kind of earned the R rating finally at the end by getting a little more intense. So the actual finale of this movie was was pretty strong compared to some of the others in this in the series. But again, it took, you know, an hour and a half plus to get there of just kind of the usual stuff. So good good finale, but not worth it to save not enough to save it. Okay. But it sounds like if you're looking for <clears throat> a like popcorn jump scary movie, you know, it's 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 almost like scary movie Halloween time. Seems like it wouldn't maybe be the most horrible thing to spend like some dollars on and go to the theater and enjoy. Maybe. Perhaps. I mean, you're just as well. I don't know why I'm trying to find, I'm so, I don't know why I'm trying to silver line the nun too. Like it's important. It's important to yeah, me. I, mean, that, I guess <laughs> I was actually paid by the movie studio to influence your review, to flip PR it to teams a yes. working overtime. <laughs> you're, you're just as well catching this on HBO, which I think it will okay, be. Okay, fair enough. Most, fair most enough, of the Conjuring enough. stuff is on Max. Uh, <laughs> to have to fair say enough. with intensity. I'm pretty okay. sure it's on Max. But are they those all those movies are? So you can wait for that. It's not, you don't need to rush out. You don't need to rush out. All right. Sounds good. Glad we landed on the plane on that. So, yes, that's an enthusiastic yes for the nun, too, says Bill George. Uh, 100%. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Okay. Next movie A Haunting in Venice. Tell me this guy's name again, the character, the main character of this, these films. I mean, I'll do my best. I took Spanish, not French, but it's Hercule Perot. Okay. We'll go with Perot. Uh, in post-World <laughs> yeah. War II Venice, Perot, now retired and living in his own exile, reluctantly attends a seance, because <laughs> that's a thing that happens. But when one of the guests is <laughs> murdered, it is up to the former detective to once again uncover the killer. Bill, should I go see A Haunting in Venice? Nope. Nope. Here we are again. This is the third Agatha Christie adaptation starring and directed by Kenneth Branagh, who plays Perot. And I've given a no to the other two. So to our question about the equalizer, like when's the last time I went three for three for no's for a series? This also falls into that, although it's not really a series per se. Also, speaking of the equalizer, other than the post-World War II part, this sounds exactly like the, the synopsis of the equalizer where he's retired and living in Italy and then like has to fucking kick some that, ass. Yeah, you know, that's actually... <laughs> That's pretty close. That's pretty close. Yeah, I mean, the first of these movies was The Murder on the Orient Express, which was the best one, even though I, I gave it a no. I still thought it was decent. It was a soft yeah. no. A softer then, no. Then Death on the Nile was the next one, and that had like one good performance in it, but otherwise it was pretty lame, and I gave that a no. And then this one is just boring. Like This is just a dreadfully boring movie, which doesn't work when you're talking about uh, you know, a horror movie uh, or even a mystery movie. Like the hook of this one is there's meant to be a supernatural element where Michelle Yeoh plays a medium. She does the seance. Tina Fey plays uh, a writer, basically Agatha Christie herself. And she wants Perot to come out of retirement and help her determine if Michelle Yeoh is a phony or if she's a real deal. So there's this element of like, is this supernatural real or not? And she wants Perot, who's a detective, to try to help her figure that out. Mm-hmm. So he attends a seance, murder occurs, 
now they're in, stuck in this allegedly... Reluctantly, reluctantly attends the seance. Now they're in an allegedly haunted house overnight trying to crack the case. So it's kind of framed up as a horror movie and a murder mystery, but it doesn't really deliver on either. On either? Okay. There's some classic jump scares. You know, it's a classic movie where this is not exactly what happens, but it's the same idea. You know those scenes where the person's looking in the bathroom mirror and then they... they they put their head down to like splash water on their face and the camera pulls down. And then when they pull back up and the camera pulls up, there's like a dead kid in the mirror reflection. Yes. And then I've he turns back and the kid's before. not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's that that's the whole movie <laughs> like over and over again. <laughs> so as good as the setup for this movie is like in an interesting way, murder mystery, supernatural, yada, yada, yada. It ends up just being really, really dull. Understood. Okay. So you mentioned the other two, the Orient Express and the, Nile one. What if you were put in charge of this of these of this franchise? What what, do you, what would you do to make these things work? Like, what's wrong? What, what can we do to fix this franchise? Should I go fix it? <laughs> yeah, we should because Kenneth Branagh as Perot is great. He's the best part. Like, I love him. That's why I keep going to these movies is because he is so entertaining in the role. He's just he's awesome. He's funny. He's interesting. Like, you see his mind at work. He does these great monologues. He's great. So, like, he's great. He's not the problem. The problem is you need to either have a really entertaining or interesting mystery, which we know is it's difficult. I'm not saying it's easy to write these things, but you got to either have a good mystery to go off of or you need a better cast. Like, that was the nice thing about Murder on the Orient Express is you had some bona fide movie stars. You, you were watching Michelle Pfeiffer and Johnny Depp and Penelope Cruz, and, like, you have this whole interesting cast. Or... or like Knives Out is a perfect example of another one that's like completely star-studded and a good mystery. But for this movie, Haunting in Venice, and the Nile movie, it's all B and C list, you know, actors. And they're not bad by any means. They're they're doing their best. They're fine. But there's no novelty to seeing them versus seeing a cast of... Yeah, no wow you know, factor. No Wildly punch. popular people that you have seen in other stuff. Like you're just seeing you know, journeyman actors who are very good, but that that's not going to help with this type of movie. This type of movie, you need that star power to get you interested in watching these characters and like trying to figure out who did what. But when you don't have that, it just ends up being watching Perot, who's great, but he's not the whole movie. So it's it just, it just doesn't work. I think you do need a big cast or you need a really, really compelling mystery, which is harder to do. So just, I would say, lean more on a, an entertaining cast. Okay, so on the to-do list for these, this franchise is better writing and better cast. Yes. <laughs> Other than that, you're, you're doing great. Fine with Perot. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh directing is like, he's not my favorite director, but it, he does an adequate job. The production design is always very strong, like in terms of locations and costumes and period piece stuff. Like they always do a nice job with that. So they're, I mean, they know what they're doing. They just need those two elements to, or one of those two elements to be really strong to make it work. Just do it better. Understood. Exactly. Yep. All right. Packed slate today, Bill. Shall we? Shall we move yep. on? Keep moving. Keep moving. Uh, okay. Our next. Our next movie is Bottoms, where in two unpopular queer high school students start a fight club to have sex before graduation. It's already funny, <laughs> Bill. Bill, should I go see it? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Yeah. We got a yes. I cannot recommend this movie enough. It was so funny. I think my review basically said no notes. It's it's 92 minutes. It's a high school comedy. Uh, uh, and they just crush it. It's great. 
And, you know, I'm seeing the clips pass me by like on IMDb right now. There's like conversations on like bleachers and in yeah, gymnasiums, classic. just just classic stuff like comedy and horror are the are the toughest things to review because not only is there the subjectivity of what's funny or what's scary, but also because the experiencing it is what matters. So like to me, talk long form forever about this is not really going to help one way or the other. So I would just say it is very funny. Comedy, subjective. But indeed, for this movie, I loved it. I thought it was hilarious that the timing was great. It was only 92 minutes long, which is like right in that sweet spot. And another thing I loved about it, it brought back outtakes and alternate takes during the end credits. Oh. Which we used to get all the time. And yeah. Then, like it feels like they haven't done it in years. And they brought that back, which was amazing. Love that. So I highly recommend. Love this. I mean, so based on the, I mean, based on the description, it sounds to me like super bad. Like that's basically the similar to the plot of super bad. It's like, let's get laid before graduation, basically. Right. Like, let's get laid before we go to college. Is that like an accurate read on the situation or like what's what what could we compare this to? Yeah, 100 percent. Like you hit the nail on the head. It is like a lesbian super bad. Basically, it's it's. Oh, right. Yes. I forgot about the two unpopular queer high school students part. OK, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, yep. gotcha. So it's two gay high school friends that want to hook up with their dream girls, but they can't figure out how. And so through different plot machinations, they end up creating a fight club slash self-defense group at the school, hoping that their girl, the girls they like will attend and that they can kind of get to know them as well as wrestle with them. And wow. I love that. And then antics ensue and they're constantly fighting with the football team who is just like satirized to the nth degree in this movie where they're constantly in uniform, like no matter what, like (laughs) in the middle of the hallway, in the middle of class, (laughs) they're always in their football uniforms. They treat them as super cartoony and it's, it's great. It's over the top. It's, it's amazingly funny. When you say they're fighting with the football team, you don't mean in this fight club context. You mean like these are the villains right. of, yes, the, yes. Correct. of the Correct. story. Gotcha. I love it. Uh, I'm in. I'm all in. And it also, one of the co-leads is played by Ayo Atabiri, uh, one of our favorites from The Bear. Yep. Uh, love her. She's in it. Boston she's native. Yep. I mean, everybody in it is great. They even have, <laughs> this is one of the most inspired pieces, Marshawn Lynch plays their history teacher and the club advisor. Oh, my God. <laughs> the Marshawn Lynch. Oh, my God. Which is great. The whole so thing's good. great. So, Bottoms, highly recommend. Get, stop what you're doing, <laughs> run, don't walk, yeah, go see to go see. I love it. Fantastic. Enthusiastic, yes. It feels good, like a fucking cool glass of water. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially compared to what we're about to talk about <laughs> in the next yeah, couple. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, let's move on to Dumb Money. As per imdb.com, Dumb Money is the ultimate David versus Goliath tale based on, I would argue that the ultimate David versus Goliath tale is David (laughs) versus Goliath. Uh, That's just me editorializing. Based on the insane true story of everyday people who flipped the script on Wall Street and got rich by turning GameStop, parentheses, yes, the mall video game store, end parentheses, into the world's hottest company. Bill, should I go see it? No. Nope. Bang. I did not care for this movie at all, really. I would say the first and maybe only positive I will share is that it's under two hours, <laughs> but this is glad we're starting with the positives. Yep. That's positive. It is. It's, it's at least like a tight movie. It doesn't overstay. It's welcome too bad, but it's a dramatization of the game stock frenzy from 2021, which was like two years ago, less even the movie ends and it was only like a year and a half ago by the time the 
movie ends. Yeah. And I, for so me, you and I saw the trailer for this. Sorry to cut you off. You and I saw the trailer for this when we were seeing uh, Oppenheimer, I think. Because we saw every trailer in the history of the fucking... No, when we saw that god-awful <laughs> movie... Uh, anyways, whatever. We saw the trailer together recently. <laughs> yeah. And you were like, oh, it's too soon. And I turned to you and I, I don't... Under, like, do you think the nation needs time to heal from the GameStop <laughs> thing? Like, what is the problem with the fact that this is recent? Like, what's the what's the issue? My issue is that it it hasn't had time to breathe there hasn't been enough historical context to use to go back and add any sort of interesting like you have nothing interesting to say about it because you don't know the ramifications yet so instead we're just recounting what happened which in this case i would say a documentary would feel more appropriate than a dramatization understood at least then you get the actual facts and insight and in a documentary you can do expositional dumps that makes sense because that's the point of a documentary versus this movie has all those, but it's supposed to be a dramatization, but it's like, that's not how these people talk. That's not how people talk. It's not how they would have talked at the time. So it and we know that, that because it was two seconds ago. Exactly. And I know it because <laughs> I lived through it. So, you know, it follows the whole ordeal from a handful of different perspectives and cross cuts between, you know, the guy who initiated it and his family, the number, a number of regular type people that were, that bought into it a couple hedge fund managers that lost, quote unquote, in the process. They never really lost, but you know what I mean? They lost some money. And it just kind of cuts back and forth between all those over the course of the year or whatever time frame that this occurred during. But all the human interest pieces, like the people that bought in, are all like paper thin characterizations. There's not real characters. Like it made me think, you know, an interest, this is what I would have done. If I were going to make a dramatization of this story, I would make it... First of all, wait 15 years. What's step two? <laughs> Ideally. But if you put a gun in my head and said, write it now, <laughs> I would do a six-part HBO series, okay? And each episode would follow the same exact time frame, but from a different person's perspective. So there's certain key moments that are anchor points, like maybe there's some stuff that overlaps, maybe there isn't. But then you would have some time to breathe with these characters that are, you know, they, they try to play into the drama of the single mother who buys in and all of a sudden has some money and is like excited about it or the kid that works at GameStop and is trying to stick it to the man. Like, and they have to, they eventually reach a point where they have to have this tough decision of, wow, I've actually made a decent amount of money. Do I sell given my life circumstances that I need this money? Or do you hold because the guy on the internet says hold, you know what I mean? So they try to dig into that, but again, there's no time for it to breathe versus if it was an HBO show and you could really follow each person then it might make it a little more humanizing because as it stands, uh, this entire movie to sum it up is two hours of people reacting to numbers on a screen. Like that's it. That's the entire movie. It's just people staring at phones or computers, a number changes and they either are excited about it or they're very upset about it. And just that over and over and over for two hours. Yeah. Line goes up, line goes down. That's, that's it. That's, that's the movie. Finance, that's what I'm baby. sitting in a theater watching for two hours. Like there's nothing to be said about it. It's just, here's this thing that happened. Wow. Isn't this wild? Like that's not enough for me. I think that's a fair critique. It, it kind of feels like it almost maybe in some ways wants to be like the big short. I'm trying to think of like, what is like the canonical, like recent financy money scheming movie of note. Big short comes to mind. Yeah. That's, that is the other thing is this movie wishes it was the big short and I didn't even really like the big short, but that's not the point. It, is it clearly is attempting to navigate the big short and the social network type 
waters. Like they they want to. It feels like the child of those things where you have the awkward entrepreneur who does this thing that has a big influence, like the social network, and then you have the crippling market effects, like the Big Short. But it doesn't come within spitting distance of either of those movies in terms of quality. They try to do some directorial flourishes, like the Big Short. There's a lot of text on screen with dates and locations and people's names, their titles, and their net worths, which is kind of interesting. The net worth piece is actually kind of interesting, but they don't use it throughout, so then it doesn't really... And then they bring it back at the very end or in the end credits when they just have text after text after text about what actually happened and who, what happened to this person, what happened to that person. It's like, you know, standard standard uh, historical movie type of thing. Sure, 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 sure. And it totally evangelizes the whole GameStop experience and the person who did it or got the train rolling, which I don't know if you can think about that however you want, but this movie was definitely had a viewpoint on it. And yeah, I don't know. The whole thing just did not work for me. And again, maybe with a little more, a little more time, a little more context, a little more retrospection, they could have done something more with this story, but instead they just retell it. And I could have read an article about it. Yeah. It could have been an email, so to speak. Could have been an email. All right, let's move on to our last movie of the afternoon. That is Expendables. <laughs> I think we're supposed to pronounce this Expendables 4. Yeah, right? I mean, in the eye of the beholder, I suppose. All right, well, according to IMDb.com, armed with every weapon they can get their hands on, the Expendables are the world's last line of defense and the team that gets called when all other options are off the table. Bill, should I go see it? No. Craig, no, please don't. As your friend, I'm telling you, don't. This might be the worst movie I've ever seen. Oh boy, um, it's embarrassing. Like, maybe. Well, besides the Matrix Resurrections, which can, continues to hold that. So, that crown. so you've come down a little bit because you texted us after seeing it, and you were putting it right there on par. It's if close. I remember correctly, it's an it's a one A one B type so I situation. You, I think you've cooled off. I think you've cooled <laughs> off in the last couple of days. I don't know. I don't know. It's bad. It's so bad. To say that like the CGI in this movie was made with the PlayStation 3 is generous. <laughs> it's bad. It's embarrassing to watch the whole movie. I went back and looked to see if this was like the equalizer where I gave them all no's. And it turns out I somehow gave two a yes and I didn't write a review for one or three. I have no recollection of I'm any sorry, of those I'm sorry. events. I'm sorry. Hold on. Hold on. You gave the second one a yes. Apparently, according to my website, no record of one or three, one or three. I don't think I saw three, but I feel like I definitely saw one, but it might've been before the site. I must've been in a good mood that day when you gave Expendables two a yes. And I gave two a yes. I don't know. Somehow I have no recollection, but this is a no. (laughs) It's it. So here's the thing. I usually try not to like shit too hard on movies. I don't come on here just like dump on movies. Usually people are not setting out to make a bad movie. Everyone is trying. And sometimes it just doesn't come together. There's no budget. There's a fundamental issue with the script. Like, but, but everyone's doing their best, and I, I want to respect that. But this movie's so fucking lazy in every respect that it felt like a slap in the face as a viewer. Like the writing, the editing, the directing, the acting especially, the effects even more especially. It's so evident and apparent that nobody actually on set gave a shit about what they were doing, and they were just churning it out that I just have, it hurt, like, internally, like, my soul hurts, like, watching this movie. Yeah. Because it's just, it's just, it's just, uh, like, in terms of quality, 
It feels like a not not even like a Netflix original. Like the Netflix originals are pretty good. Not even like an HBO original. This is like a Tubi original Oof. type of type of situation. A Quibi, a vertical video. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Obviously, does not even come close to deserving a theatrical release. They can't even do like a cool walk in slow motion shot. Even that was shitty. Like it's just poorly made on all fronts. It makes no sense. ChatGPT could have made a better script. The whole movie's embarrassing. And I was, it rattled me. It rattled me to my core. I, I, wrote in my re- yeah, yeah. I wrote in my review. I was like, maybe movies are bad. Maybe this medium is inherently flawed. What's the point? I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I, oh my God. Like the road to a thousand reviews stops here. Like I can't do this with my life. It's over. It's over. It's so bad. And here's one example. I'll give you one. I'm not going to go into all the shittiness of this movie, but I'll give you one example of how recklessly bad this movie is. Dolph Lundgren plays a character who is a recovering alcoholic. They make a comment about it where Stallone says to state them like, oh, I liked him better as a drunk, which fine. They show up. There's another scene later. Dolph Lundgren's on a plane reading a book about sobriety. Like that's like a point that they make. Yeah. Fine. Then during the final shootout of the movie, Stop he it. keeps missing his targets and he says, fuck it. And he takes out a flask, oh, drinks God. it, <laughs> hits his shots and then says, it feels good to be back. What? That is so awful. Like, you can't do that. <laughs> so awful. <laughs> horrific. Just horrific. <laughs> oh, uh, God. All I could think during this entire movie was, if you've seen the movie Adaptation, when Brian Cox is is giving <laughs> writing advice on stage, all I could think about was that clip. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Yep. Yep. That's, that's it. That was my summation. That clip hits differently in a post-succession world. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that's a good point. Oh, God. Yeah. This is Expendables 4. Yeah. I, I, think I've, I think I've said enough. So this is, this is basically the hardest no you, could, you can give. This, this no is like fucking solid granite. This is a, this is a oh, hard. Oh, yeah. This is yes. as this is as hard of a no as it gets. It seems like, yeah, lo- yeah. Matrix Resurrections and this are in recent memory are easily the two worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Noted. I, I can't. There is no redeeming oh, value in this. Strays film. is really getting off unscathed here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck. I, yeah, I'd watch Strays again over this. Oh god, hundred uh, percent of the time. Oh god, and twice on Sunday. Like you just you can't. You couldn't. If you put a gun in my head and said, watch this movie again, I'd be a dead man. Like, there's, I <laughs> can't do it. Can't do it. Okay. All right. Well, hey, I, I, don't, I don't think I have anything to add. I just, no, I just, please, please uh, let us move on so I never have to think or speak of this movie again. All right. Let's move on to Netflix and Bill. What are we watching? Bill, you got a, a lot of things on the sheet here. I, like I said, I've been away for a few weeks, so I'm, I've, I got, I got nothing for you. So take it away. Uh, a couple quick ones. I'll go through Theater Camp, which I did a review for as well because it's still, or it was at least recently, in very limited release. It's a movie that's on Hulu right now, but again, in limited release in theaters. Uh, I gave it a yes. Very funny mockumentary about a theater camp in upstate New York. Also has Ayo Adebira in it. Love it. From The Bear. She's getting plenty of work. I love that. It's very, very funny. I did Theater Camp. As a kid, so that connects with me in a in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Not like an intense sleepaway camp like this, but still a theater camp. But anyway, 
Yeah, it was hysterical. I mean, it's just, it's a funny, funny mockumentary that if you have any interest in the subject, you should definitely check out. Is it like the office style cutting to like interview one-on-one, like, like Abbott Elementary type of thing, or more of like a, like a wet hot American summer type situation? The latter. There are, there are no one-on-one interviews. Okay. So, so it's not there's, that. There's not that. But it is, thing. it definitely is the office stylistically in terms of like the snap zooms, refocus, like cameras there just observing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the, that's the overall aesthetic. And they add some text on screen, which actually at times is very, very funny to give you updates on what's happening. Sure. And like as scene transitions, essentially. But no, there's no one-on-one interviews. Got it. Got it. But yeah, definitely recommend. Very funny. Good stuff though. Runtime, reasonable? Yeah. Again, 90 minutes. Oof. Love that. Nice comedy. Tight comedy. I also watched... This was specifically while I was sick on the couch. I watched The Haunting of Hill House. Now, is there a new season or are you just going back? Because I watched the show years ago. I'm going back. Oh, I'm okay. Going back. Okay, okay. Friend so this of the is season show. one? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Friend of the show, Krista, recommended it. Um, went back and watched it. Very good. Very well done. Yeah, I liked season one. Did you watch season two? That would be the... Bly Manor, right? Yes, correct. I have not. It is very bad. I would not recommend it. Okay, all right, noted. (laughs) First season, Haunting of Hill House, good times. Scary. Scared the shit out of me. We don't have to go into again how easily I am scared by things like this, but uh, yeah, no fun for Craig. It was good. Do I wish that it was a little shorter? Like, could they have told that same story in, you know, six or seven episodes instead of 10 or whatever? Probably. I do think there was some room for that. But I thought it was really well done, and I did not watch Bly Manor. Yeah. And then Midnight Mass is the one after that, and then Fall of the House of Usher is coming out next month. Oh, God. So there's been more. Okay, okay, okay. So, yeah. Again, all anthology, so they're different stories, but similar cast and same writer-director is my understanding of how these have worked. Sure. Uh, Sort of like an American Horror Story situation. Exactly. But no, I dug it. I dug it. I thought it was, I thought they did a really nice job, especially some of the execution of some of the sequences of scares were like really well done. Yeah. And there's one jump scare in particular that the car shook one. Me to my, yes. Yeah. Dude. I was like <laughs> again rattled after that one. Just shook. Oh yeah. Fucking scare the COVID right out of your face. <laughs> yeah. Real good jump scare. So very impressive. Oh man. Uh, and the last one thing I watched was a stand-up comedy special called 37 and Single, which as someone who is- Can't imagine there was any relatable material in that. Yeah. I'm only both 37 and single. (laughs) It is. It was extraordinarily funny. Spot on. The whole first half is about dating and online dating and the way apps work. And like, it's alarmingly accurate and hilarious. And then the second half is more just kind of life comedy and family stuff and normal type of stand-up work. And it was great. Very, very funny. If you need a stand-up special, highly recommend. What's the what's the fellow's name? Jared Freed. Jared Freed. Check him out. Jared Freed, 37 Single, Netflix. Highly recommend, especially if you are someone like me trying to do online dating, particularly at an advanced age. Very, very funny. Well, so our last thing on Netflix and Bill here, which I, I guess technically, although I kind of forgot I was watching it, but I think I am still watching it, which is Winning Time, season two of Winning Time. I've, I must have some episodes to catch up on because I, I was all up to date before I left for tour. Apparently been canceled. Ouch. Sad trombone. Bummer. I was enjoying that show. Yep, that did get canned amongst a, month, a bunch of other things recently. I feel like part of that is knee-jerk reaction to the strikes. But uh, yeah, a couple shows were on the chopping block, and that was one of them. 
Yeah, so, well, RIP. what are you going to do? Yeah, it happens. Uh, all right. Well, then let's look ahead here. What are we going to watch soon? So today I got a, a double feature lined up as of uh, oh, right. recording. Yeah, big Very day excited. for you today. First, I'm going to check out The Matrix. Ever heard of it? The original. Back in theaters for a re-release. I don't know why, but sure. I'm trying to think if I saw it on any other re-releases. If I haven't, then this will be the first time I've seen it in theaters since it originally aired in 1999. Damn. uh, And that was a movie where I was very excited for it. My mom dismissed me from school on opening day, and we went to see it. First show of the day. And I've said it before on this show. I don't need to like get into the detail of it, but it is the most important movie of my life is the original Matrix. Hands down, 100%. So to be able to see that on the big screen again, I'm very excited. So I'm going to see that. I'm excited for you. I'm going to see that. And then I'm going to grab a little dinner. And then I have early access screening to The Creator, which is a new sci-fi movie from Gareth Edwards. <clears throat> early reviews. I just saw a couple headlines said it's very, very good. And I'm seeing it in IMAX with laser projection. So pretty stoked for that. And then after that, it goes straight into horror movie month here, uh, all of October. So I have tickets to see Saw 10. I have tickets to see The New Exorcist. A couple other movies coming up that will see how well they fare on the horror scale. But that's, that's what I got going on. I'm excited for you. Thank you. Is, that a, is the Matrix thing like going around? Like you just said, or, or you just said you're not even sure why it's that. Like you literally just like opened the fucking AMC app and saw it there and you were like, let's go. <laughs> literally, literally. I pull it up. I'm like, I have the day off. I'm like, all right, what's playing tomorrow? And I pull it up and I go to uh, assembly where they tend to show more than the theater closest to me. And it said, The Matrix from 1999, fan favorite, three o'clock, or fan favorite, $5 at three o'clock. I'm like, sold in. Boom. So I have seen them do those like random $5 fan favorites of classics. And I'm guessing part of that is also due to the strike, just trying yeah, to like yeah, put yeah. out sure. the studios, trying to turn out a little extra cash. But in this case, yeah, I'm, sign me up. Makes sense to me, man. Well, I hope you have a great time. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Should I Go See It podcast. Please make sure to tell your friends to follow us on Instagram at Should I Go See It. 